Wow, you like that way too much. People were getting hurt. You ever do anything stupid? No, what? We aren't buying, that's stupid. Anyway, yeah, we're not buying that at all. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, some of us guys on staff were out on the Sandusky River in a couple of boats, and uh, we, we were doing the, the tube thing and the water skiing, and I hadn't water skied for several years, but then the, the topic came up of uh, slaloming, you know, where, where I can't get up on a ski, but you can kick a ski off. You guys know what I'm talking about? So... And I had tried that once when I was 15 and couldn't do it then, but I thought now, you know, I should be able to do this with, with all the wisdom I've gained. And so, sure enough, you know, got out there on the river and I tried to kick the ski off and just, you know, went down and got back up, tried to do it again, went down. And then the, I was going to try it one more time and I thought, you know, because I, I knew my chances of success at that point were kind of limited. So I thought, well, before I do this, I'll go out of the wake but I'm going to try to get some air just to do something fun before I biff on this uh, kicking a ski off. So I tried to get the air, and it, which, by the way, I don't think anybody in the boat noticed that I got any air or anything, and hit the water and just about tore my shoulder socket right out of my, my body. But uh, why do we do stuff like that? You know, why do we do something? And we look back on it and go, what, what, what am I doing? You know, I think the answer, I think I know the answer. And it's the pursuit of joy. Everything we do, I think, anytime we find ourselves do, doing something stupid, because we think it's going to bring us happiness, we think it's going to be joy, it's going to be good for us, or it's going to bring relief, or satisfaction, or pleasure, or something. That's why we do things. And a lot of those things, we're just pursuing joy in the wrong way. Not only do I think that is true when we're, you know, do something dumb, I think everything, and so if you're thinking, ah, I don't know about that, let me challenge you. I think everything you do is in pursuit of joy, happiness, something along those lines, pleasure, satisfaction, relief. And so we look around our world, and it's, we're all just a bunch of joy seekers, People drink to pursue joy. People have inappropriate physical relationships to pursue joy. People work 60 hours to pursue joy. They get married to pursue joy. And we do all these things to pursue joy. Have kids to pursue joy. Go to the movies to pursue joy. Go to the gym to pursue joy. Go to church even to pursue joy. We all want joy, everybody, all the time. I think it's been a few years ago I, I shared a, a quote that I want to share again from uh, Pascal. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, this is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Do you remember that quote? He's saying, everything we do is motivated by this pursuit of joy. And there's nothing that we do that's not motivated by it. 
Even things that we do that appear selfless are a lot of times, it's really comes back around us. We all pursue joy. It's just that many, many of us at many times pursue joy in stupid ways. Jesus, I, I think, knew this about us. Obviously, Jesus knows everything, so if it's true, he knew it. But in his very first sermon, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, the first words out of his mouth in his first public sermon go like this, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed, and by the way, blessed means happy, joyful. It's, it's kind of a deeper happiness, a deeper joy, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then if you know the sermon, he's, you know, blessed is this person, blessed is it. He starts out, he's saying, hey, you want to be happy? You want to have joy? Well, blessed, he's saying, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when he's saying poor in spirit, he's not saying happy are you who walk around depressed all the time, poor in spirit. No, poor in spirit. He's saying blessed are you, happy are you, joyful are you who are poor spiritually, who realize that you have nothing spiritually to offer to God, that you are bankrupt, that you are poor, because you have to understand that to understand the gospel. You have to understand that to have a relationship with God, that you have nothing to offer God, that you have nothing spiritual that contributes in any way to your salvation or your being in heaven or your being reconciled to God. We have nothing. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. you got to know that first. And then he goes on in his sermon. Hey, you want joy? Hunger and thirst for right, righteousness. You want joy? Be merciful. You want joy? Be a peacemaker. He didn't say pursuing happiness was wrong. What he was saying is, hey, you want joy? And I know you do. Pursue it wisely. Pursue it the right way. Don't pursue it stupidly. And so he tells us how to live. And of course, the problem with the Christian life is, is that our Christian life's kind of up and down. We just, we just got off the series of, of end times and we're talking about the second return of Christ. By the way, Anybody notice I was talking pretty fast last Sunday? Yeah, I'm trying to slow it down a little bit this Sunday, so we're dialing back a little bit. But, you know, we know Jesus is coming. We understand we're living in light of that reality. So what about our Christian lives? How should that impact the way we live? How should that impact how we pursue joy? Well, as we kind of analyze our Christian life, a lot of times we realize that, that the Christian life it's up and down. It kind of goes in spurts. How many of you have, have looked back over your Christian life and kind of how you're doing as a Christian and then and kind of observing what you've been up to as you try to follow God and you've been disappointed in yourself? That happened to anybody? Yeah, we, we look and we're like, wow. How did I get caught up in that? How'd that happen? What was I thinking? How could I have done that? That was dumb. You see, the Christian life's up and down. We kind of get that. And, and then 
when we evaluate our Christian lives, it's a little disappointing to us. And then we think, I got to do more, you know, and we start thinking, oh, where's my Bible reading plan? Oh, I need to spend a little more time catching up on those chapters that I got behind on. Instead of snuggling up with our kids and joyfully pointing them to God, we, we just get out of whack. You know, what's God want from us? How do we consistently, wisely follow Jesus every day of our life? Well, how do we pursue joy in our lives? Really, the answers are the same. And think about it. If Pascal's right, and I think he is, the gospel's the answer for you and me. The gospel's the answer. Because our greatest joy... The greatest joy we can experience in life is the joy of knowing and following our Savior. It's only in Jesus Christ that we will experience the most life-changing and enduring joy that's humanly possible. Only through Christ. And we can pursue Him out of joy. He offers us joy. And when we think about it, we have the God of the universe tell, offering us joy, follow me, and anytime we go another direction, it just brings disaster in our lives, and we still do it. It's kind of crazy. A couple of months ago, I was in uh, New York City, and I was traveling by subway between New York and Newark, New Jersey, to the airport there. And as I was leaving New York, um, on this crowded subway, it was a double-decker subway. You ever see those? You kind of, where you come on, you can go down a few steps and sit or up a few steps and sit. It's kind of, and it was just packed. And so most of the time I just stood next to the door on kind of the split level and, and rode it that way. But at one stop, some people got off and I kind of looked up a few steps up and I saw this seat next to a, a young guy who was kind of zoned out trying to tune everything around him out. And so I found my way up there and I plopped down next to him and, and we started going, well, then the subway filled up more again and pretty soon it's just jam-packed. And uh, there's really no place to stand. You have to stand kind of on that middle place. And then pretty soon a, a young lady came in, kind of a trendy, tall young lady, came in with an oversized bag and she's wearing real high heels and she kind of stumbled into the seat across from me, which was vacant, and uh, kind of apologetically. And then we're just, it, these are not big seats. I mean, I'm next to a guy and, and then this lady sits down, this young lady, and we are just smashed knee to knee. And so I kind of give her an awkward smile. <laughs> we're just jammed in. And then she, and she kind of just starts talking. And she tells me she's from South Africa, and she's in New York City. She's a singer, and she's doing a video shoot for some song or something. And, and I'm, I'm, she's telling me this, and I'm looking at her, and I'm, I'm seeing that, this, that she's living the dream, she believes. And I'm looking at her, hearing about her living the dream, and I'm thinking, you're heading for disaster. And then this, the conversations turn, and she said, so what do you do for a living? It's very, it's very interesting for pastors because this comes up and then you always tune in to where, where we're going next. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And, uh, and then here's how she reacted. 
she kind of wistful, she kind of threw her eyes up in the air and she kind of, a smile came over her face and she was like, yeah, and, and she told me, just briefly kind of mumbled that she had some Christian roots back in South Africa. And then it's like immediately she caught herself and kind of sobered up and I, like there's a conflict in her mind and then she said this one thing to me, she said, what do you believe about same-sex marriage? This, this is how it goes, you know, when you're a pastor. You, you never know where, where this is taking you. And, and if, if you know me very well, and I've mentioned this before, I believe the best way to answer that question is this way. I'll say, well, I'll answer that question if you answer two simple questions from me. Since they've asked you, they feel obligated, they'll say, okay. I'll say, number one, is anything wrong? And they'll always say yes. You think they might not, but they always say yes because they think you're wrong before they even hear your answer. So they've got to say, yeah, I think some things are wrong. Is anything wrong? She goes, and then the next question is, who gets to decide? Is anything wrong? Is there a right and wrong? And if there is, then who gets to decide? And as our conversation went on and I really was able to, to talk to her about the gospel, I could tell she made this switch that she just wasn't buying it. And, and, and I could tell there's a little internal conflict there, but I really feel like she landed to where like I'm, and, and I think her position was, I'm, she didn't say this, I'm just kind of guessing from our conversation, I'm more loving than God is. So I don't have to believe in God because I'm more accepting of people than he is. She, she could not go with God gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. And then my stop came up and I got off. You see, when we know what God is saying and we decide to go another way, whether we're not a believer, it's a disaster. But even when we are believers, it's just it's, it's little disasters in our life. And it really makes no sense. It's really extremely unwise. Jesus really addressed this. He actually did in Luke 6.46 where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. He's pointing out the inconsistency of us believing God is who he says he is, that Jesus is God. He's Lord of our lives. We say that, but then we don't follow him. And so Jesus asks the question. Here's what I'm saying. As long as we're pursuing joy anyway, because that's what we do. Why not pursue joy in the wisest way, the way that God tells us to pursue joy? And I think we can do that four ways. So these are really four stages or four steps to not being stupid if we're a believer. And the first is, know Jesus. And the more you know Jesus, then you will trust Jesus. And the more you trust Jesus, you will then love Jesus. And the more you love Jesus, you will then obey Jesus. Let me show you. Let me kind of walk through that. First of all, know 
Jesus. Know who Jesus is. Scripture tells us a lot about Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, he, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's God in flesh, Paul's saying. The firstborn of all creation. Talking about preeminence. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. In describing Jesus, Paul uses a lot of alls. You know, he's saying it as strong as he can say it. And, and the question is for us is, do you know Jesus? Do you know what he's like? Do you know him for who he is? Because anytime you're saying, hey, yes, I know Jesus, and I know Jesus wants me to do this, but I'm going to do something else, that's just stupid. And it will bring disaster or heartbreak. We will wreck ourselves every time. Think, think about it this way. Have you ever put yourself, probably not a great thing to do, in God's position? What if we were God? What if we were a creator God? And let's say I'm God and I create these little beings. And I know everything about them because I created them. I know everything, how they tick, how they think. I created how, you know, everything about them I created. And then I tell them, here's right and wrong. Do the right thing and, and we'll have joy forever. And then they say, no. No, we don't want to. Forget you. We're doing it our own way. You know, how would you react? I, I mean, I think if it was me, it would just be like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to create some creatures over here. Uh, you know, I would just kind of start, oh, clean the slate, start over. Let's try this one more time. But God doesn't do that. Jesus is our creator. He, he doesn't react that way. Let's finish what we started reading in Colossians 1. Now verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him, that's through Jesus... To reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, instead of just rubbing us out, God loves us and he creates a way. That's what the gospel, the good news is all about. That God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. In all his righteousness and holiness. That's the gospel. How many of you have been watching the coverage on the Pope? How many can you even avoid the coverage on the I mean, there's a lot. Of, guys got some great press. I mean, a lot going on with the Pope. And what I keep hearing about the Pope, we were just talking about it, Forrest and I, a while ago in between services. And what you keep hearing, or I keep hearing, is that the Pope is coming to bring the gospel 
although I've never actually heard him say the gospel or talk about the gospel, but, you know, the news coverages, sometimes they didn't say he's coming to bring the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. The gospel starts with bad news that we're all alienated from God. We're in trouble. We got problems. We've rebelled against our creator. We're in willful defiance. But the good news is God loves us anyway and he doesn't just rub us out. He makes a way for us to be forgiven of our rebellion and sin. Jesus, our creator, actually takes on flesh, comes into our world and allows himself to be violently tortured to death in order to pay for our wrongs, our sin, so that justice, God's justice, can be satisfied and we can be forgiven. And he offers us this forgiveness and it's grace, meaning it's a gift. We don't deserve it. He's offering it to us free. That's the gospel. He just calls on us to respond with, with faith or, or repentance and faith. I'll explain that in just a bit. You see, that's who Jesus is. That's what he's done for us. If we know, if we really know Jesus, we'll trust Jesus. If we know him, we will trust him. If, we, if, if you don't trust Jesus... It's because you don't know him. Think about the disciples. They, they lived with Jesus for, for three years. Remember earlier in, in Jesus' ministry when they were on a lake, uh, Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is actually sleeping in the boat and they're crossing from one side to the other and a storm comes up and they start to panic. You know, they're cruising. Some of these guys are fishermen. They're familiar with the lake and they see the storm rolling in and, you know, it gets darker and the clouds are coming and they see the lightning and all this stuff's coming, coming. Now the boats, get, it starts getting kind of dicey and they start wondering if they're going to survive it. Anybody ever been on a boat where you've had no control like that? Yeah. That just happened to me a couple weeks ago. You know, that happens. And you feel totally helpless because there's nothing, the wind is just blowing you around. There's nothing you can do. And so finally, they decide, we're going to have to wake Jesus up, remember? And so they do that, and what does he do? He, he calms the waves, the storm, just immediately with a word. And then he says something that's kind of interesting in Luke 8, 25. He says, and he said to them, where's your faith? He's saying to them, why aren't you trusting me? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who is this? Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? So here you have, they're not, Jesus said, Why aren't you trusting me? And then they're like, Who is this guy? You see, if you really know Jesus, you'll trust Jesus. And then we see this big difference, this big shift in the life of the disciples. Think later into the ministry, think after resurrection. Now, they know Jesus better than they've ever known Jesus before, right? They know Jesus, and they trust Jesus with everything. As a matter of fact, all of them but one give their lives. One took his own, one died later, but the rest of them gave their lives for Jesus. 
and they changed the world. Why? Because they then knew Jesus better. They knew Jesus enough that they could trust him completely. And here's what I'm telling you. You can trust Jesus with everything and anything. Trust Jesus with your happiness. Trust Jesus with your life. Trust Jesus with your ultimate joy. He created you. He's telling you the way to experience true, enduring, life-changing, lasting joy. Trust him with your decisions. If you know Jesus, you'll trust Jesus. If you trust Jesus, third, you'll, you'll love Jesus. When Jesus was asked what the greatest command was, remember he said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's saying, love God with everything. We keep living the Christian life and catching ourselves pursuing joy the wrong ways, or as a non-believer, totally off the reservation, pursuing our joy our own way. And he's just saying, love God with everything you have. That's the greatest commandment. That's our, our number one job. And Jesus is pointing us when he tells us, he's pointing us to our deepest joy. When you find yourself saying, hey, I know God wants me to do this, but I'm going to do that. You found something in that moment that you love more than Jesus. It's just that simple. And then you can always tell when somebody really loves Jesus because they will actually obey Jesus. Their love for Jesus will unmistakably show up in their life. Obedience is always connected to love. Martin Luther is famous for saying, we are saved by faith alone, but faith never remains alone. He's saying there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. We're saved by faith alone, but once we're saved, the Christian life shows up. We start wanting to follow God, wanting to obey him. Faith never remains alone. Jesus put it this way in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, he says. But we love and struggle with other things. A couple of years ago, we did a, a series called Counterfeit Gods. And we talked about these competing things in our lives. And we kind of boiled it down to three or four, you know, money, sex, power. At different times in our lives, you know, single people probably struggle more with, with sexuality. And not wanting to wait or do it God's way. It's, it's we embrace this, these thoughts of, I think I have a better way to be happy, to pursue joy. And it always just invites disaster. Or money. You know, we have money, we want things, we accumulate money and there's nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money that causes a problem. And then we, you know, we know 
God wants me to be generous. God wants me to give a, a percentage, a portion of my income back to him. And, and then we think, and I would be happy to do that, except for right now I need this. Remember, Jesus said, you cannot, have, you cannot serve two masters, God and money. And when we're saying, hey, God, I, I would do what you say, but I need this more, we're realizing we're, when you do that, you're serving the wrong master. Or power, you know, we have power, influence in our lives, maybe in our family, at the workplace, in our community, whatever it is. And the question is, how are we using that power the way God tells us to use the power for others or the way we want to use power for self? See, God has a better way. We think using power for self is the way to bring joy. But it's not. It's God's way. Lasting joy, enduring joy, the best, deepest kind of joy comes from doing what God wants us to do. Now, we struggle with doing what God wants us to do. We all struggle with that. I'm not saying that as believers we get to a point on this earth when, when we're sinless. That does not happen. The Bible tells us that. Romans 3.12 Tells us all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I mean, the Bible's very clear about this. Could it be more clear? And, and so we put it all together and we realize can we be good enough to earn our salvation? No. Then once we have acquired salvation, can we be bad enough to lose our salvation? That's right. That's exactly right. Why? Because it's not based on us. It's a gift. And so we struggle with sin in our life. And sometimes the struggle can get so bad that we start questioning whether we're even a believer. And if you're the path, I've talked to people about this a lot, and our, our other pastors have too. And it's kind of, it's very interesting because the people who are struggling the most with their sin are, they're always clearly believers. It's the people who think they got the sin thing taken care of that they're, they're pretty good. Those are the people that you're going, wow, you're in trouble. Don't ever think that your sin is more powerful than what God has done to reconcile you. There is no sin that can remove you from God's kingdom if you're truly a Christian. But, and please don't walk out of here thinking, well, Kevin's saying basically if you're a Christian, you can do whatever you want and it's all okay. It's not what I'm saying. You will bring disaster into your life. And I'm saying if you really love Jesus, you will want to obey him. But the proof of Christianity is not in perfection. It's in the desire to follow God. Actually, I believe that God's given us this desire. That's a God-given gift that we want to follow him. Mark 1.14 
Jesus says this, now after John had been taken into custody, and, and what did John preach? John was out there going, repent. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. Now, biblical repentance is a change of mind that leads us to a change of action. It's a change of mind to lead us to live a different way. The gospel is the news that Jesus came and made a way for us to be reconciled, that he died for us as sinners so that we could be forgiven if we would only respond in belief and repentance. Repentance is kind of the other side of the coin of belief. It's not works. It's we have to repent. We have to change our mind about who Jesus is before we can really trust Jesus, believe in Jesus, place our faith in Jesus. We have to change our mind about Jesus. We have to change our mind about rejecting Jesus or we have to change our mind about being disinterested in Jesus or we have to change our mind about us being morally superior to Jesus or whatever it is until we place our faith in Christ, we're missing it. Repentance in relation to salvation is changing your mind about who Jesus is. And this repentance, as far as salvation goes, is like a one-time occurrence. We repent, change our mind, and we believe and then that leads us to living a different kind of life because we have the desire to follow Christ. But that's repentance for salvation. But repentance for salvation is a one-time occurrence, but repentance for a believer is not a one-time occurrence in our lives. It goes on and on and on. Our salvation is secure but when we realize that we've been out of step with God and we've done what God's told us not to do, and by the way, all of us experience this, the proper response is to repent again and believe. Not repent for our salvation like we've lost it. No, just repent saying, oh yeah, I need to change my mind about that and follow God. Repent and believe. It's kind of like the shampoo bottle. How many of you, you know, the instructions are rinse and repeat, right? You shampoo it, you rinse it, and then how many actually do the repeating? I'm kind of curious about that. How many actually wash your hair twice because the bottle tells you to do that? Okay, how many of you, like me, you, you go once and that you call it good from there? All right. Okay, the once people, you know, obviously they're selling shampoo, so we're in the majority. But anyway... It's that rinse and repeat. That, that doesn't apply for me for shampoo, but it does apply. It's repent and believe. And when we, we do that for salvation one time. And then in our life when we mess up and we realize there's sin in our life, we repent and believe God. We repent and we believe God. We rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. We keep doing that. And one way we do that is by reminding ourselves, know God. And if you know him, 
you'll trust him. And if you trust him, you'll love him. And if you love him, you'll obey him. By grace, God gives us a heart that desires to turn back to him. We don't experience perfection in this life, but we do have a desire to be right with God and to follow him in what we do. So if you find yourself as a believer not obeying and you're a little alarmed at that, be alarmed, that's okay. It's an issue. But if you find yourself kind of stumbling and having a hard time getting this right and the grip of sin in some area of your life seems to keep defeating you, go back to the first step. Remind yourself of who Jesus is. Who he is. What he's done for you. And when you do that, you'll be able to trust him. And then when you trust him again, even in this area of your life, and when you realize you can trust him, you'll love him. And when you love him, you'll be re-energized to obey him, even in this difficult area of your life. Because that's what he's calling us to do. And here's the thing. Do not... Think, I can't come to Christ. I I can't become a Christian. I can't get saved. I can't turn to him because I have all these issues in my life. Kevin, you don't understand. You know, I want to become a Christian, but I know I have all this stuff and I don't think I can give it up. Well, you can't give it up. You and God can give it up. But that's not the most important thing. The point is that you love God, that you want forgiveness, and that he'll give you a desire to turn your heart toward him. It's not that you'll give up all these things and you'll be looking at your friends going, wow, they're really on the road to happiness and I'm missing everything. It won't be that way. You'll you'll have the desire to follow God. You'll want to do it. You'll see that it's best. You'll see that's the path of joy, not doing something stupid. And it will change your life. So as long as you're pursuing joy anyway, and we all are, why not do it in the wisest way by following Christ? Let's pray together. Father, Father, we thank you for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. And Lord, no doubt in a room of this size, there are some of our friends, people sitting here who don't have that relationship with you. They've really never humbled their hearts to truly repent, turn to you in belief and trust. And Father, we pray that you continue to pull them, tug on their hearts, that your spirit would continue to nudge them toward you. That maybe even on this day, the best day for them, they would give their heart to you. God, help them to see that they should not be hindered 
by the other things in their life. They, they should count the costs, know those things may go away, should go away, but that you'll want them to go away. Because you give us a desire to follow you that we wouldn't normally have. And God, for those of us who are believers, and we keep messing up, Lord, help us to remember who you are, that we can trust you, and then we'll love you, and we'll be more motivated to obey in every area of our life. God, thanks for showing us the way to true, lasting, life-changing joy. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for being here at Grace. We're going to have part two next Sunday. Hope to see you then. Have a great day. You're dismissed.